Have you ever wondered how many stories get lost from one generation to the next? How much knowledge goes untold only because we didn't ask our grandparents a simple question? That's what the Last Generation podcast is about, bringing generations together to have candid, unscripted conversations. This season, we brought together Holocaust survivors with their grandkids. There's no official count of how many people survived the Holocaust, but today, the youngest survivors are in the early 80s. I, myself, the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, had so many questions for my grandma Susie, I wish I'd had that conversation. So I wanted to give others a platform and a space to have that conversation. My name is Mary Kramer. I'm your host this season. Now, let's listen from the last generation. What I want to say is, August 12, 1942, my father was murdered by the Nazis. August 12, 2004, my grandson was born and was given a name after my father, Israel. Just want to say, Herr Adolf Hitler, you did not succeed. And you will never succeed. Mark Schoenwetter was a young child in Brostek, Poland, when Germany invaded, and his family was forced out of their home. After his father was taken by the Gestapo, Mark fled along with his mother and sister. They spent time in a nearby ghetto and then went into hiding in the Polish countryside, where they remained for three years. By the end of the war, Mark was one of the only few surviving Jews from Brostek. Hate is an issue that we face today as a society. When it seems like we are moving towards a better, more humane, understanding world, we still encounter individuals who are racist, spread messages of hate, and are supported by followers who emulate and cheer them. We have already witnessed the destructive consequences of these hateful words and leadership, yet it appears that some have not learned from history. Education is the best tool we have to fight hate and teach new generations to build a more just and inclusive society based on memory. Listening to and learning from the stories of those who came before us enables us to comprehend their experiences and avoid repeating historical mistakes. This live episode is a special collaboration with the Museum of Jewish Heritage and the Mark Schoenwetter Holocaust Education Foundation. Mark and his family join us to tell their story, educate, and set an example of resilience. Welcome, Mark. Uh, Lexi, Ashley, Jason, and Jared. And thank you for being part of the episode nine of the of the podcast. We're really have, lucky to have you. Now, uh, Lexi, uh, Ashley, Jason, and Jared will give you the space to start talking and asking all these questions to your grandpa. Enjoy it. Thank you so much for being part of this. The first question we really did want to ask, though, is family is really important to us. And we wanted to know what the relationship uh, with your sister was like uh, at the beginning of the war and how it changed throughout the war and into your teenage years? 
Well, my relation with my sister, before the war, I have to say, it was very little relation because I was like five years old. She was about two years old, two and a half years old. So we didn't have any, any connection too small to, to understand between a relation between two siblings. Now, during the war, when we had to escape from our village and then go to the ghetto, or when we were hiding in the forest, or if we were hiding in somebody's house, a farmer's house, our relations became little bit slowly more, more closer to each other because simply saying when we were hiding in a place there were three of us my mom my sister and me and by hiding we were kind of told by the farmer family that we cannot talk we have to be quiet so our relation grew from, say it, talking to each other, but whispering. Just because that's all what we could afford to do is whisper to each other. And slowly, slowly, it was only two of us. So our relation was getting closer and closer and closer. And continued, I have to say, till today. Because every Sunday, I pick up the phone and I call my sister, which lives in Israel, and we have a conversation. So we have a great relation. Love that. Yeah. What about your father? Do you remember what he was like before? Do you have any specific memory that stands out about him? Well, unfortunately, I have to say that I don't have much memory of my father because, as I mentioned, he was killed in 1942. And before that already, we escaped a little bit before that to a ghetto and we didn't have contact with him. So my memory, unfortunately, I have to say, it's very slim about my father and me. And just describe what happened to your father and how, and how you ended up finding out about the whole situation, about how he passed. The way we found out what happened to my father was during the war, while we were hiding in the forest, there was a Polish family from Jostek who happened to live in our house. My father gave him two rooms. And while we were hiding, occasionally, Mr. Piwat, the head of the family, or his son-in-law, 
used to come to the forest and bring us a, a piece of bread or something to eat. One time when he did not come, his son-in-law came in and he mentioned, no, and my mother noticed that he's wearing a pair of shoes. And she's asking him, where did you get those shoes? And he kind of resisted, didn't want to explain to her. But after a few words, he says, okay, let me tell you. One day, the Germans came with the trucks to our village, to Brostek. They asked for young Polish guys to go to work. They loaded up the truck or two trucks. They took them to the forest and they told them to dig a big hole. After we were done, they took us back to the village. Then they came back and they took us back to work. When we were going to this place, we didn't know where we go to work. All of a sudden we see we're going in exactly the same direction, the same place. So when we came to this forest and we look in this big hole that we digged before is full with dead people. Because what the Germans did, they brought about 250 men, women, and children. They stripped them naked, tell them to take the clothes off, line up all the clothes on the side, then line them up and they killed them. So they told us to cover the whole area so it wouldn't be visible or show that it's something dead. So after we did everything, then they told us go and pick one item from all the goods that you see here for the work that you did. So he says, I was walking around, what to pick, all of a sudden I see shoes. When I look at the shoes, I notice the pair of shoes that your husband was wearing because I work with him every day on a farm. So for the memory of his, I picked those shoes. So he tells my mom, now you know that your husband was murdered and he's in this forest in this mass grave. That's how we found out what happened to, our, to my father. So for as long as I can remember, you've always been very, obviously what happened to you is horrible. You've been very prideful of your story and you share it so much because you want everybody to know it so it doesn't happen again. But I can imagine that directly, like immediately post-war, it wasn't something that you were sharing, especially in the communist regime and everything. So did, it, did you become so comfortable telling your story and so wanting to share it once you went to Israel, surrounded by a more, I'd say, welcoming community? Or did, did it uh, start to happen when you came to America? As far as for me to share what happened during this period of time. It came basically when I came to the United States and when I 
married, got my two kids, and they will start growing a little bit, going to school. Then I felt that it's time to share what happened to me during the war so they know. And I was slowly, slowly telling them my story. And that's how the whole thing started with me to share with everybody besides, of course, my grandkids and my everybody else. I remember when I was younger, I, uh, I had a lot of anti-Semitic experiences and I called you one time to talk to you about it. Um, just like, how do you, how do I handle this? I don't know what to do. And me, I'm just calling my poppy. You know, he knows what he's talking about. But thinking back on it now, older, I can't, I can't even imagine what might have been going through your head with everything going on. Do you remember that? Do you remember, you know, as your children, your grandchildren are going out into the real world and we're facing this anti-Semitism today still, what goes through your head with that? Well, to go through the anti-Semitism which goes on today, my view is a little bit different than general view is on it, on this subject. Because I feel that anti-Semitism has been around for ages, thousands of years. But now we're making from it such a big issue, which of course we have to, but sometimes we're going out of our way even. Because for example, sometimes they accusing young kids because they had some place made a sign of a swastika or they hang the picture of Hitler somewhere. And I've been a few times involved with speaking with those kids because I'm speaking to schools and to kids. So they were asking me, so when I got to talk to those kids, those kids didn't have the slightest idea what a swastika means, why the picture of Hitler is not right to hang or talk about them, who he is. I don't know who he is, they tell me. I thought it's funny. So I went and I did it. So my outlook on those situations is that it's lack of education from the, I would say even from the youngest, youngest child going to school. You have to teach and explain to the kids the history. If you do that, and then you see that somebody that's the knowledge of it, and it's doing, well, then we have an issue. But first, we have to make sure that we did our share, and we taught the young generation 
what actually happened in the past. In other words, we have to teach them the history. And it's not only about the Jewish people. They should know the history of everybody else. You should teach the kids. The kids should read books and have knowledge about it, what happened so far. But they say, yeah, we should, yeah, but we don't have money to buy books. So we say, what do you mean we, you don't have money? The school doesn't have a few dollars to buy a, a book and give it to the kid? No, no, no. We don't have no budget. So that's when my two daughters, Isabella and Anne, came with an idea. If we create a Holocaust Foundation and right away the money which we're getting, we're going to give to the schools so they can buy books, take the kids to the high, to, to museums, to any place and teach them about the Holocaust. And that's when they decided and we decided to create the foundation. And I have to say, no, we do good, but we should do much, much better yet. And we're doing our most, in particular, Isabella and Anne. But we need support. We need more people giving us donation so we can take and turn around the money into right away into education give to the schools. So maybe this way, by doing it, maybe one day we will see that we achieve something that our future generation be safe. It never happens anything like it again. I think um, one of the misconceptions that people have about the Holocaust is whenever I say, yeah, my grandfather is a Holocaust survivor, there is, oh, what camp was he in, right? Um, and so there's that misconception that just because you're a Holocaust survivor means that you were in a camp, and that's not the case for you. So when did you realize, like, I am a Holocaust survivor? Because it must have taken a bit to settle in. Well, people kind of assume in, instantly that if you survive the Holocaust, you survive a concentration camp, a labor camp. Why? Because the focus is not to take a group of people on a trip, let's say, I'm saying because I am from Poland, take him to Poland and bring him to a forest and show him the forest. You know, there were three people, five people hiding here and they survived. They live under those conditions, they said, no. But what they do, they take the people, they travel to Poland, 
and they go to Auschwitz. Well, Auschwitz, yeah, it's a concentration camp. Gas chambers, that's where people were killed. And they, they focusing on this part. So that's why people automatically, if you say that you are a Holocaust survivor, what camp did you have? Where, they, where were you hiding? Where were you been in which one? Auschwitz or Buchenwald or wherever that was. Which is okay, normal, because the advertising is the color in this direction. How was many years ago now, we had probably one of the most impactful trips of my life, but you were able to take us to Poland and really walk us through your experience and where you were hiding and who you were hiding with. And we even got to uh, go back to your old home and uh, your family ended up giving the home to the Piwat family as a thank you. And they still had an area of that home in the corner of their yard still from like the original woodwork. So how was that being able to bring your grandchildren back to Poland, back to Brostek, back to an area that has so much hard memories, but being able to walk us through your experiences and your story. How did that make you feel? Well, it was my dream always to take my grandkids, go with them and show them where my family, where I used to live, how does it look? So this way they have an idea to, a visual idea see themselves where I live, where my family live. Because this way you have a different outlook. Your outlook about the whole thing, I think, changes if you see by yourself with your own eyes the location where it was, what happened, it's, I feel it's so much different. So now you're, you've now been a part of uh, the raising of directly six kids, essentially, your two kids and us four grandchildren. And how, when we were at the ages of six or seven, the age that you were during the war, how did that look or how did that feel to see us living completely opposite lives to the life that you lived and your childhood? Well, it was, I would say it was a pleasure to see my kids and then my grandkids living, would I say normal life? Probably as much as you can say normal life. And if something came like an example, like I mentioned once to your mom, wow, look, he's so old. You know, when I was in this age, I had to hide. I couldn't say one word. 
but take a look. Take a look. Now they hear and they can do basically whatever they can do. They don't have to be hungry. They don't have to be uh, freezing outside in summertime be sweating not to take a not to take a shower not wash yourself you see they can do all those things don't you see how nice and, and and lucky they are how did you keep yourself sane all of those years i mean i could barely go five minutes without talking <laughs> how can how were you able to go that long, just staying still, not doing anything, and having to just lie there. Well, I, <laughs> I always say that I do all, did, or my sister, that we both did, lie not to say anything and be later on in life more positive of everything, looking forward to the future, only because of my mother. Because my mother was the, I consider her, the greatest woman in the world. Because for me, for my sister, we here thanks to her. And she was always looking forward with a positive outlook of life. If we cry, we were hungry, we were uh, dirty, we were, we were freezing and we cried and complained. She always responded to us with a smile on her face, always telling us, you see, you hungry? We're going to go and find something to eat. And we're going to eat, it will be fine. Don't worry about it. Look forward, we will get it. If we were freezing, wait, wait till tomorrow, we're going to find a place, a farmer is going to take us in, and we'll be in the house, and we'll be okay. Always had an excuse to look forward the positive way. So that's why if we were going through all those things, slowly, slowly, we kind of fell into this trend of being satisfied, positive looking, hoping for the best. What were your um, emotions or thoughts when you were coming out of hiding and the war seemed to be at its end? What were those feelings for you and your family? Well, after we were liberated by the army, the Soviet Union army, and we came back to our old house. It was strange. 
we kind of weren't sure how to behave ourselves. We were happy, but again, my mom told us, be happy, we're free, we don't have to hide, we're back in our house, but let's keep our eyes and ears open in here because we don't know for sure what's going on after the war. You see, so we kind of, again, had to be a little bit on a tense side with the situation. But then when we came to Israel, it changed completely the, the, the outlook, the behavior, the, the, the security. And then when I came to United States, of course, didn't have any fear of anything. I mean, we were free country. You can live, it's beautiful, nice. Don't think even what happened in the past. Keep thinking what you're going to do in the future. So I am very proud. That's the word I use to, when be able to say that I am the grandson of a Holocaust survivor. What emotions do you get when you get to say that you're a Holocaust survivor? Is it pride or is it a bit of anger? So what really, what emotions arise when you say that I'm a Holocaust survivor? I think what makes me is lucky. Not pride, sure I am pride that I am alive, but I was lucky. The luck that the few people who survived this period of time, because very few survived, they were lucky people. Yes, I am mad that happened, that the world permit for this to happen, that people and leaders in this period of time kind of were blind. They didn't see, or they didn't want to see, or they went alone, and they let this to happen. So that's why I think it's important today that we have a different outlook like the old-timer leadership in Europe had and permitted because they saw what's going on in Germany. This doesn't happen overnight. They saw what Hitler was doing, was obvious, and they somehow went along with him. So. If we talk about it and we teach about it today, maybe if there is somebody genius like Hitler and wants to get to power and kill everybody, maybe today's leaders will see it and wouldn't let this to happen. Dad, what message would you like to give um, leaving here today, being a Holocaust survivor and seeing your grandchildren up there with you, you go out and you speak to students, what message would you like to leave to say of why it's so important and to learn about the Holocaust and why we need to learn about it to make for a better future? What message would you like to say? Well, what I can say, and I'm saying that 
that we should never allow to forget what happened in the past. Because if we forget, again, this may happen again. A special thanks to the Museum of Jewish Heritage of New York and the Mark Sean Witterk Holocaust Education Foundation. The Last Generation is created by Mary Kramer, produced by Pickle Music Studios, Nicolas Morbelli, Maya Glanz, and Marco Doniso. If you have a story to share, contact us on the website at thelastgeneration.co.